right, so welcome back to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Such Nerds Podcast. Yay! Hooray. I'm Jason from Connecticut with my co-hosts. Peter from Long Island, New York. And Dan from Los Angeles. And we are ready to unwind our brains from this last section of the first part of Second Foundation, the third book of the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. We've just completed part one of this book, which is The Search, or Search by the Mule, I should say. And it is six chapters. Last week we covered the first three. This week we read the final three chapters of this part. And, uh, yeah, my head is spinning. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. Yeah, this was great. I enjoyed this. uh, exciting and lots of plot twists galore. Yeah. Especially in the two men and an unconscious Pritchard chapter at the end there. (laughs) (laughs) Two men and a contorted other. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. He'll be fine. That's the best part. No, he'll wake up. Don't worry about Pritchard over there in the corner. Yeah, I had to read um, (laughs) A Death Mask of Hate three times to understand what that meant. (laughs) It's like, what? Is he dead? No, he's not dead. He's pining for the fjords. So to get things started, you know, the fan letters, the the listener mail, it's a little bit light, but I do have one uh, that I would like to read. This is from Mockery Man, Such Nerds Fan, and it reads, Peter, on a scale of I'd prefer a hot poker in my eye to the Spanish Inquisition sounds pretty fun. How much do you really hate Isaac Asimov? um well that's kind of a leading question i don't actually hate isaac asimov i do find his earlier works very dry especially with the last couple chapters of foundation and empire and the first six chapters of this new book uh second foundation it's great it's like legitimately great i thought it was riveting uh story there was some character development kind of edge of your seat storytelling. So while I had kind of a low opinion of his writing from the get-go, because I felt like, you know, okay, well, I could probably write better than this. I would say he's really come into his own in the last nine chapters that I've read because there's been more of a human element, which is what I think really drives a compelling story is that human element. So I would say uh, probably a hot poker in the eye level of fun is what I'm at. <laughs> Yeah, Spanish Inquisition still, I don't think that ever seems fun to anybody. Unless we're talking about the Monty Python version. Nobody ever suspects the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, I hope that answers the questions of our uh, illustrious listener number two. Mockery Man, such nerds fan? Mockery Man, such nerds fan. Yeah, I think think we'll know if we don't get a follow-up re-inquiring something along the same lines. I think we can assume that it has been answered. So thank you for that, Peter. I might need some some graphical assistance about the spectrum um, from poker in the eye to Spanish Inquisition, which you know probably seems like fun. Poker in a different like location, maybe. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, is know. that the high end of the spectrum or the low? <laughs> which one is the better one? I guess is, is permanent maiming via burning like high on the spectrum of hate or low yeah. on the spectrum of hate? Your personal masochistic preference. So, you know, I get the impression that basically the spectrum is from, like, 
hates a lot to hates a lot hates. too. <laughs> uh, uh, hates a lot, and there's no no leeway in between the two uh, the two points. They're just different representations. It's like a bell curve level. of extremes, right? <laughs> no, I think it's just all tapped out to the you know to the max level. I, I, th- I like think Peter's I'm, on his way back to a new section where he actually somewhat likes Asimov. Right, so. right. I, I think I'm probably in the middle section of like mild indigestion level of hating as well. <laughs> like it's like a bell curve of extremes, right? Oh, so like in the middle, it's not that. Yeah, it's, so it's I'm like, you know. And then on both extremes. Yeah. Right it's I a fat tail. Tom, Tom hurts a little it's a fat bit. fat tail you know? and the statistical distribution of suffering. <laughs> of the Very inquisition happening. I'm within three standard deviations. Yeah, it depends how many sigma. He is from the uh, from the the mean hatred. Well, I'm, of out, I'm well outside six. I don't know what the median hatred of Asimov is, but maybe we can find out. <laughs> Since this is a nerd podcast, let me speak in the terms the nerds right, would understand. Right. You know, and it's always interesting also to throw in there like, what is the mode like? Who you know? <laughs> What's the most frequent? Most, the most common hatred of, of Asimov. Answer <laughs> of hatingness of Asimov amongst all things. I'm going to go ahead and say it's the uh, the hostile environment at uh, sci-fi conventions for women. That's probably the median mode of hatred for Asimov. Or maybe it's the number of autobiographies he's written. So I had a moment, I got while we're on the topic, um, I had scoffed a little bit at Asimov earlier in the book, this whole Belchanis thing. And his like instantaneous finding of Tizenda. And I was kind of taking that out on Asimov. Like, come on, Asimov. Do you really think we're going to believe that this clown, like, off the cuff finds the second foundation like that? Like, what? Like, how ridiculous is this story? This is, this is like fictional, but it's like beyond believable fictional. And I was kind of reeled back a little bit to center when it, you know, I got to the point where, you know, Belchanis is being kind of exposed as, mm. you know, having already known where to look. Yeah. Been a foundationer. And uh, and I was like, ah, okay, all right, I gotta, gotta give him a little, give him a little cred. Yeah. Take yeah. back my uh, vitriol, swallow it back down, and uh, and and yeah. go with the flow wait, a little bit here. Wait till the end to judge. Right, yeah, right. how impossible so, the story is. Are we, are we getting ahead of ourselves? Shouldn't we, we be are. doing some We're kind of uh, illustrious of summary? As usual. All our, right. our best summarizer. So, yeah, a lot happening. Um, so let me try to break it down a bit. We, so we begin this set of chapters with the aforementioned Bale, Chanis, and Han Pritchard answering a litany of basic questions from the elders on Rossum. Eventually, they come to learn they were expected in advance, leading to some thoughtful strategy talk between the pair before an ultimately uneventful meeting with the governor. Afterwards, Pritchard and Chanis have a heated discussion that ends with Pritchard pulling a blaster on Chanis to arrest him for treason. The mule soon arrives and outs Chanis as a second foundationer, leading to a stalemate as the mule is unable to control both Chanis and Pritchard at the same time. After subduing Pritchard, the mule overpowers Chanis mentally to extract the location of the second foundation, said to be on Rossum. After Chanis awakes, he and the mule are met by the first speaker of the second foundation, who informs the mule that Chanis was programmed with the erroneous location of the second foundation, and the mule's gambit is in vain. The chapter ends with the mule psychologically subdued by the foundationer, Chanis recovering in the hospital, and the true second foundation still securely hidden. Lost over quite a few parts there. Because in the in the interest of not being thirty minute summary, yeah, but, no, that um, was good though. 
But yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it starts out a little bit slow, but like by the second chapter, like every chapter is like, you know, you, you mentioned the other book. It's like this would have been 17 chapters in one of the first books because of how many things that happen compared to, you know, uh, each chapter itself could have been three chapters because of all the activity that goes on. Yeah, they're, they're tremendously dense, right? They're very yeah. dense. One of the things I really enjoyed was the the internal dialogues that were happening, especially among like Pritchard, right? And it's like this push pull, or like the it was really more like two pullings in different directions of like, am I am I losing my edge? Have I been tampered with? Am I just getting old? Do I still love the mule? What was yeah. it like before I loved the mule? Oh, I can't even look at that. Like. You know, yeah. and it was yeah. it was interesting because of the like the desperation that comes through the, of him not wanting to lose the thing that's keeping him a slave, basically. Right. Is that mm. that love and affection for his captor, so to speak. It's it's funny. I, I had thoughts of kind of like back to the end of Miss where it's like he's like frantic, like it's like you're unwinding his mind where he doesn't know what what he's believing and what he's thinking you know it's just like his uh he's like i don't know if what i think is what i think or it's what i'm thinking i'm supposed to think or how i'm programmed to think and you know what if every like every base assumption that he has it's like he's sort of like depersonalized by the end where he doesn't even know what actually you know the core of his being actually is so he's second guessing every single thought he has and every single action he has it's just like He's clearly out of his league with the, you know, you find out later exactly how out of his league he is, but he's clearly, you know, a boy among men with the mule and Chanis sort of playing 4D chess. He's sort of in there trying to king his checker guy and uh, it's <laughs> the same way. I mean, and to be fair about Miss, like and him being all, you know, confused, they were like overclocking his brain yeah. to like boiling points, yeah. right? He yeah. was running an 8K video uh, right. operation yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, the one moment that uh, that kind of struck me was when, you know, you guys were talking about it a little bit, but um, just to restate it, when Pritchard's, like, in the chair and he's, like, a contorted, like, twisted mess of human flesh because he's literally got like the mules you know loyalty programming and then you know Chanis who's on the other side of the blaster that the mule is holding the mule's about to push the button with his thumb I guess and Chanis goes in and like releases the hook from Pritchard's mind that was restraining him from like killing the mule. And to your point, Peter, when he got set up early in the book, when the mule said, if I released the, you know, your emotional control, you'd kill me out. Like you'd kill me now. Like, kill me, kill me on sight. Yeah, I was I'm so sorry, excited. I was like, it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, like is Peter really Maybe Peter really is crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I, mean, I guess I there was like there was gun. still like a faint within a faint yeah. within a faint within a faint. It wasn't even like you know the Dune uh, faint within a faint thing, but it was like just oh, like was, 
it was so many wheels, layers wheels of within things. wheels within wheels there's no way you could have if you could have predicted this one, one would have been so precious yeah. i definitely I, I was like that's a Chekhov's gun i know exactly yeah. what that is yeah that's definitely you showed me the bomb under the table and now i'm waiting for it to go off you know yeah uh, but yeah, uh, and Stannis the Manus, uh, as I'm going to refer Janus. to. Stannis. Stannis. Stannis Baratheon. Like he's yes. the man. Yeah. <laughs> Janus Baratheon. Janus That's from another, that's another podcast where another they talk podcast. about Stan the man. Seafaring, seafaring uh, foundationer, apparently. Right. So Janus the Manus. He was just a, just like such a deeper character than I thought he was going to be. And when they revealed him as a second foundationer, I was like, what? Yeah. How? How? Yeah. yeah. And he talked about knowing Ebling. He was like, "Remember Ebling? Remember the surprise he had when you know, like it was like he was aware of or somehow in touch with Ebling's mental activity or something like that." Yeah. Sure, he met thought, him at a, a psychology conference somewhere in the galaxy pro- maybe. years back. Probably psychology. what it was. I thought that yeah. was him, like mining the Yule's <laughs> mine. Basically, that's where that came oh. from. He's like, you remember that excitement? Like you didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I didn't, I didn't figure out where that came from. I didn't take that. Yeah, that came past I, my I, head. I like, in and out. I was just like, how? Okay, how did he? How was he aware of? How was he around when Ebling was there doing his thing? Right, because it was just like the four of them, right? It was that like, was like the beginning. That was before the mule was the mule. Before, like, I guess they they knew. So the second found the first speaker of the second foundation said that they knew what his shtick was when he was when he took over Calgan, right? Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then they were on to him before Pritcher and Beta and Torin and all that and Ebling were, you know, involved. So maybe they were watching the whole maybe Chanis was watching the whole time and he was the kind of mental ears of the second foundation of what the mule mm-hmm. was doing from way back when yeah torn was just a unmarried mole man you know before he became you know mr foundation mm-hmm. adjunct but yeah i i it's funny looking back on when, when you first see meet Chanis and you're kind of like i would mention bill rios and it's like you know this guy's just like this pompous sort of self satisfied kind of guy and you feel he's on the mule side and you find out later not only is he quite the contrary what what that is but it's also like then he's not even he's just kind of middle of the road foundationer it's clear like as you get into the second chapter where he and the mule are sort of matching wits you know with their their mind you know ray ray guns or whatever and it's clear that the, the mule's <laughs> got the bigger the bigger caliber and uh <clears throat> janice is just holding on for dear life um it's quite an interesting character arc from where I thought he was and my feelings about him in the beginning of the chapter we started. Like whether I take his side or Pritchard's side in the initial discussions to where he ends up. He's, he's, like, an, he's like an every man hero at the yeah. end of the, the book within a book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he's actually like – there's actually a lot of similarity between Chanis and Pritchard, right? Because – Yes. That's, um, that's they a both nice kind of like yeah. – opened their mind to the greater cause and let themselves be kind of reduced, if you will, right, from their former selves for the cause of their captor or their leader or their group or whatever you want to call it. Well, I think it's what's interesting is the idea that like the, the continuing that parallel, like, OK, Chan has voluntarily underwent these procedures, right? 
whereas our boy Han did not. It was forced upon him. Yeah, when he wakes up, we'll see what state he's in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's... They didn't mention him, you know, other than he's going to be fine as he's, like, passed out. Yeah, I mean, they... No, he, I mean, they, the say, end, right? they say what happens. He, he wakes up and then he realizes where the actual um, foundation is, where the second foundation is, right? And he goes, well, China, by the stars yeah. of the galaxy, now I know. But they, I don't know if they mentioned Pritchard. Yeah, they don't oh, what Pritchard does? Oh, I mean, like my impression to... was that Pritchard's still a slave. It's, yeah, he's it's just kind of like the, my takeaway. <laughs> yeah. Like in the back, passed out, basically. Yeah. And they're just... I mean, he's ultimately a pawn in this whole operation, so it right. makes sense that he's just kind of a passenger at this point because he's outlived his usefulness to the plot to a certain extent. And it's about the Foundationers and the mule. And uh, the, the mule clearly is, uh, you know, like I mentioned last time, just about, you know, it's like Dragon Ball Z or something where it's like the force rays pushing against each other. And, like, that's sort of the situation. And clearly, Chadis doesn't Tune in have... next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, uh, but then the second foundation guy comes in and he's like clearly in excess of the mule, even just with his, you know, his foresight. Well, I, to, I got the impression that he was not as powerful as the mule. He just kind of like had already had the things in motion. Clever. Beforehand, right. Like they, they had started moving the, the pawns in position back during the initial takeover of Caligan, right? As, as like they saw, if, once they figured out what he was, then they started uh, protecting, m- moving people off world from Tazenda, right? Presenting so, it was the actual, pretending it was the foundation for years. Yeah, at the one point they brought it up and he calls the mule like, oh, not so subtle one. That, like they picked him off because he was being so overt with his plans in a little bit of a self sort of important kind of way. And that's how they figured out that, you know, they're able to counteract his plans by putting a plant in there. But yeah, it was very much like we've talked about Kaiser Soze before. It's like that level of sort of insidious type of guy who's, who's sort of sees the whole chessboard and is making the moves way in advance. Yeah. But I guess that's what makes some second foundationers. It was like a split Soze, right? They duped him at his own game because the Soze is Chanis, but he's like a manipulated Soze and he doesn't realize that he's not the full Soze. He's only part yeah. of the Soze. And then, like, the full feint comes through after. So you say. Yeah, so I say. Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a bad analogy. Just <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a total Kaiser Soze, but it's a similar type of. It's, it's a plot within thinking. a plot, right? Yeah, but it's and somebody. I, I, there's clearly somebody who sees through all the artifice and knows what's going on. I thought it was an extraordinarily uh, large risk. That the first speaker himself went in to confront the mule after things were going south with uh, Chanis, right? I did really like how they handled the mule, which is basically they manipulated his um, his motivations, right? Yeah. They they muled they, him. Yeah, they they muled him, but they healed they they essentially healed him, right? Is like they they like saw into his past, and then they like changed his motivations so to speak from like domination out. for its own sake to like oh well you still get your empire you're just you're like one of us now like we all have the same kind of good intentions and i thought that was in- interesting i felt like that was more in keeping with the first and second novels kind of core principles of like nonviolence. violence is the last refuge of the incompetent 
of the incompetent, yeah. right? But then the last book ended with, you know, a woman shooting Ebling Mess, like, in the face, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess she didn't have... And that's what we don't have. In the torso. In the torso. Yeah. And no more women after that. Yeah, and then we were done with women, because... <laughs> yes. What happened you let a woman into your story? Well, we don't know yet. We don't know yet, right? Because we still have the other half of the book to go through. I guess we get women in this book referred to by gruff Rossomites, just like barking at them to put chairs and things around. You know, yeah, yeah, the, there's, there's that. Bring and the then, good one. Yeah, bring out the good chair. Bring out the hooch. The good hooch. The good tree and then, hooch. Uh, bring out and the then, turnip hooch. And then Chanis like challenges, uh, challenges the mule about the privacy. And he's like, what are you going to something and and bring in dancing women yeah the dancing girls that was the only other mention that i saw but but we we still have the second part to go through search by foundation so there's yeah. a there's a chapter 13 after chapter 12 which is lord there's chapter 13 which is late 13 come after 12 yes it does sometimes so i mean there's you know there's stuff there's something in there yeah i mean it's a lot of chapters so it's not clear like all right we're done game over yeah. yeah, but yeah. I mean, I guess the question is, assuming that <clears throat> the second foundation is now outside of the mule's reach, then what was the initial reason for finding the second foundation in the first place, other than to warn them that you know not to that the mule was going to try to overtake them? Yeah, know. it's it's a good question. I think um, what is the point uh, of the second foundation? Well, no, I think it's a reflection of the first foundationers are not meant to encounter the second foundation right they're meant to be like this independent bastion of science yeah like this independent kind of seed of humanity and if they know or they get in touch with the second foundation then they'll have too much access to the psychohistorical capabilities that would give them too much knowledge of their potential futures through psychohistory calculations. And then that would kind of blow their, blow the cover of the plan. Right. Whereas the second foundation is like, they're like the keepers of psychohistory. And so they have to remain kind of out of sight and out of mind to kind of keep watching the plan, right. And keep the plan moving forward. Yeah. I, I think that's part of it, but they also talked about how, um, Basically, they got into like the, the the logic behind the power of the mule and the other kind of psychic abilities of the second foundation and how it's basically like an extension of their primal powers that they've already had. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there's been a million years of evolution since the development of language and therefore we didn't need to use these superpower of being able to read people's emotions through subtle gestures and i guess like micro expressions is what they're he's referring to kind of like uh which is a a more modern concept and then basically the mule was able to like do that you know because he was a mutant he he could tap into that right away so it's almost like the second foundation is kind of like looking into the past like like trying to maintain that fundamental humanity whereas like the first foundation is about like maintaining the progress that has been made like in technological invention yeah i mean like you could divide it up roughly into emotion and logic as like the two different sides of the coin which is weird because the emotional side is the one who has the mathematical 
formulae to understand the effects of group behavior on the course of history, right? Or the course of future, right. history of the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting dichotomy too that they bring up about the first the first foundation being like this overt organization that everybody knew about and was like kind of out there to be seen, and the second foundation was done in basically in almost complete secrecy, um, and and their whole mode of operation is subterfuge basically, and you know there's this rev, there's this revelation just like Ebling Miss had at the end of the the second book of um, Foundation of Empire, where Chanis realizes where the second foundation is. And I'm wondering if it's like a hiding in plain sight kind of scenario where it's like a lay, basically they're like a layer of, uh, they've been there the whole time, but they've kind of been like this Illuminati like organization or something like that. Right, they're just kind right. of like pulling the strings, keeping things on. Cause how else would they know about the mule right away? Right. Like the moment he showed up on Caldan, like they knew they knew all about that dude, you know, and if they're really a, uh, a secret world or a secret empire with their own planets and stuff like that, I don't think that's possible. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Chanis the Manus knows Evelyn Miss, <laughs> right? There's a lot of like intrinsic knowledge. And they, they said outright, which could have been a lie, but I'm going to take it at face value. In order for them to be able to use these psycho manipulations, um, they need to be able to see the person, right? And right, one of the things right. that makes the mule unique is that he doesn't. He can just kind of yeah. manipulate from afar. Um, that seems to be like more true um, psychokinesis kind of stuff, like psycho telepathy. Tele- yeah, I yeah, forgot telepathy. About right? And so um, – like the seeing of somebody makes me think like micro expressions and, and stuff like that. Cause you mm-hmm. could see somebody and you could see their little, you know, uh, flinches of disgust right. And, right. and joy and fear and stuff like that. Um, so in order for them to like have known miss or to pick up on like how the mules like MO and, and how he was going to operate through the universe, they had to be able to actually see that stuff. So that, you know that makes me think that the second found the second foundation is like this hidden empire within the the new empire. Yeah, I had that same kind of feeling, especially when they like when he highlighted at the very end when Chanis wakes up in the hospital and he realizes, you know, he remembers where the second foundation is. It's got to be like in the first foundation somewhere. I mean, it's like got to be either in the within the first foundation from the original like kind of terminus seed of the first foundation or some not long after terminus kind of had their first crisis or whatever kind of involvement or engagement and and inclusion in the foundation i don't want to call it empire but maybe the second foundation was inside of us all along Mm -hmm. learn the true (laughs) meaning of second foundation the second foundation was the psychologist we we met along the way yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all about the it's all about the second foundation we met along the way. So is it Chanis the Manus or Chan Chanis the Menace? Chanis the Menace. I think it's Chanis the Menace. Like Chan the Man. Clearly not enough of the man. Wasn't Chen the name of one of the, like the name of the emperor behind the Ling, emperor? Ling Ling Chen or something like that it was the Ling Chen. Chanis right? the Menace. He does it's not so. not too menacing, in in retrospect. 
I would say, do we, do you think the mules just, do you think that's it? I think that's it. Cause they basically said like, we're just going to outlive him. Like that's, and then we'll get everything back on course. Is he's, what that's, that's, he's done now. He's yeah, been controlled. Like, he clearly is not going to have any mulings, you know, because yeah, of his sterile affliction. freak can right, live out right. the rest of his days. <laughs> so I thought that that was one of the things that he like threw in their face when he's like, what are you going to do? Restore my masculine virility or something like that. Right. Remember they pointed out that Maybe. he was a, like they they were pointing out like what the shortcomings were in their estimation is they they could they knew that he had this power they knew that he would have like a tendency towards megalomania but what they didn't estimate was the effect of his sterility on his you know attitude and his intense um, paranoia and his, his intense paranoia yeah it's like the psychic uh, psycho psychotic paranoia or whatever they called it right yeah and uh, you know what they it's what he blasts him back. It's like, yeah, what are you going to do? Like, make me, you know, unsterilized or whatever? Yeah. You know, that brings up a good point that I didn't think of. There's a significant lack of genetic manipulation and human augmentation in these stories. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, no, like, oh, I have a cybernetic heart. Or, like, you know, these people have been genetically manipulated to be super strong or – you know, run real fast or yeah, yeah, we can't like, we can't make you unsterile. No, they have, what's his name? Uh, Fran Solo's got a metallic arm. That's about the extent of the, uh, does he have a fake arm? I I thought it was a robotic arm. Wasn't that what he had? Did he? I thought he had just no arm. Did there, was there a robotic prosthetic? Maybe. I don't know. That was so like a drummer from death leopard. Yeah. (laughs) It literally like, he's got a specialized drumming kit so he can play drums. Back on the mole planet. Just hey man, it's just still like, got a rock. <laughs> just like, but you think, since this book was written in 1950, whatever, that guy probably had two arms at that time. So I noticed on the first page of chapter four, like right at the outset of this section, you know, I, I read like three paragraphs down and they say, you know, that it's about the two men and the elders, right? And they're sitting around with all these quote unquote elders. And it says, still... Enough appeared younger than 40 to make it quite obvious that elders was a term of respect rather than entirely a literal description of age. And I thought, wow, that sounds just like the Such Nerds podcast. He, they're also referring to the size of their beard, too, which I thought was appropriate. Yes, yes, yeah. They had some beard, but not a substantial beard. Some had a little beard. <laughs> like That's like the determining factor about yes, who's really... Right. Who's really That's how Eismoth right. ranks like your seniority, <laughs> which is yeah, ironic from a man who only had sideburns. Yeah, he's like beard. I'm going next level with my just ear hair and side hair and sideburn ridiculousness. But the other one that I thought was funny was, you know, it's like when the beginning they're building up all the stuff to talk about. Oh, what's our strategy with the governor? Should we be? He's like afraid. Should I do this and then the other? And the governor shows up and he's running with his chemical fueled car, not even new. Like it's like this this joke of him showing up. It's a decent car, but like it clearly doesn't like to shift properly. And like it's clear that it's running on chemical fuel, not nuclear fuel, which is just gasoline. Like this guy probably doesn't even smoke the guy. <laughs> and then well, you can't you're smoke like waiting for to get to this stand. point where like something happens and he goes like care for a snack and like the entirety of the chapter just smashes away that's the 
snacky cake and that's it and the governor's gone it's like some little daddies. all this time worrying about zebra cakes don't look him in the eye don't look him in the eye don't is he gonna control me and always like did you donut face <laughs> <laughs> and then like that's it he disappears from sight and it's like well, and then the next chapter, well, that was boring. Right. Uh, my fa- One of the things that I really enjoyed was the, the, the last sentence of the meeting with the governor. He goes, that was all. It passed with that. There was no more unpleasantness. The governor, having fulfilled his official duty, apparently lost interest, and the d- audience died a dull death. And I was like, what? I know exactly what that means. <laughs> like all of a sudden conversation just dies and everyone's just kind of like looking at each other, like making niceties. Like, yeah. So about the weather, um, yeah. <laughs> like just, you can feel the awkwardness of like the assembly. He's just up there folding, folding hex, drawing hexagons on his paper after he makes his speech because there's nothing else for him to do. Yeah. But, but it, I mean, I guess in retrospect, he's got like, a waste paper basket fire. And so it's like not a really a real government. One. I guess in retrospect, he's just sort of like a figurehead. He's not an actual elder, and these people aren't actually, you know, like important people. They're like actors, essentially. Yeah, but are you, they, they are don't they know though? that. I don't think they are. They, I think they're like they think a they're legitimate just, government. You no, know, uh, yeah, legitimately, they've been setting the stage for for a while, right? At least mm-hmm. a couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, at least it, I. So if you if you factor in the fall of Caldan. Right. Yeah, but they're not like. Wasn't that five years? So hasn't the war been going on for ten? Or am I mis misunderstanding? Was it like one year to conquer the foundation, and then five years of like, you know? But I mean, what I was saying is, like power. since you know they're all bent out of shape because they're to meet the governor, and it's very exciting. Because I think they're on second on you know it's just some sort of like officer of the second foundation. You know, like he's like in the hierarchy of foundation, second foundation, this guy's like a mid-level bureaucrat. But since the second foundation is not there at all, he probably not, you know, as important as they, as they sensed in the buildup in that chapter where they're worried about, is he mucking a mind control me? Like, can I look in his, in his eyes? Or do you think that is just Pritchard sort of losing his mind? Ooh, that's a good point. Is it is it Pritchard just like freaking out for no reason? I mean, they they kind of presented the governor as like um not a nitwit, but like Oof. like he didn't have a lot. To, yeah, and a little yeah, bit. They're, of an they're like, what did you make of the governor? He said nothing at all. He certainly seemed no mental genius to me. A very poor specimen of the second foundation, if that's what he's supposed to be. And that was right. what I was thinking. It's like they think he's like this sort of executive of the second foundation, and what we find out later is he clearly is not. But, you know, right. it's it's open question of whether he's like just some, you know, lower level guy who's still competent or if he's just completely, you know, if it's it's meant that he's supposed to be this useless guy or, if, you know, what he actually is. It's clearly not somebody they should be afraid of, but, you yeah. know, how inept it's is almost he like actually? They, it's almost like they set up a false empire. Yeah, that like, was my like, thought. Like, you know, like, like a, looking back yeah, on well, it. It makes sense, but that he was kind of not that much of a figure. But you read the chapter and you're like, oh, it's going to go. It's about to kick off. Yeah. And like, like, oh, this is the gambit now. And Janice and Pritchard are all like nervous about what's going to happen. They're strategizing. And it's like, eh, nothing. Just going to have a snack. And then, you know, tired of my quarters and fold some hex guns. Like, that's the extent of it. Paper mache uh, tanks on a hill. Yeah, I've got know, some like, gardening to do. I'll be I'll be gone now. Man, it must be pretty sweet to be a governor, like in the future. <laughs> 
Depends. And it's the Asimov style of just inept bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. They didn't say if he was brutal or efficient or uh, – Or know, neither. Or neither. I mean I think it's pretty clear he's not very efficient. Clearly, judging by his chemical-fueled ground car with a misaligned <laughs> transmission, you know. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting. I mean that was the point where also, you know, coming away from that meeting, Pritchard's driving himself kind of batty, right? Because he's testing his own loyalty by having these, like, fake conversations in his head, trying to make himself say things against the mule and see how he feels about it. Can't even speak negatively against the mule, so he's like, does that mean I'm okay? And uh, because Chanis, like, he messed with him a little bit ahead of the meeting, right? And he's talking about expecting that this will be the, a second foundationer and that Pritcher is like, when I see the governor and what by way, by the way, if our mentalities are handled, like how, how is he going to know if his mentality is handled? And Chanis is like, Chanis replies with brutal contempt. Well, you should be accustomed to that. Like you just throw it in his face yeah. that he's manipulated by the mule. Yeah. And like, it's just, you know, in the end, it turns out that Chanis was like just as mind melted by his own. Yeah, just differently. Know, yeah, just yeah. in a different way. So there was yeah, one, one part of the book that like yeah, I got confused about, and I just wanted to get your guys' take on it. So this is like before Chanis, or before Pritchard pulls the gun on Chanis to confront him for being a spy. So he's, he's testing his brain, and he goes, he still felt absolute joy to the mule, or absolute loyalty to the mule. If that were unchanged, nothing else really mattered. He turned his mind to action again. Chanis was busy at his end of the room, Pritchard's thumbnail idled at his wrist communicator. And then the response came that he felt that came. He felt a wave of relief surge over him and leave him weak. This is the part that I don't really understand. That's the quiet muscles of his face did not betray him, but inside he was shouting with joy. And when Chanis turned to face him, he knew that the farce was about over. He knows the mule is on the ship getting ready to come down to the planet. He knows the news okay. there. That's I, I thought about that too. It was a little tricky, but looking back, that's what that's why he's so confident to uh, to confront Chanis because he knows the mule's coming. That's when Chanis messes with him and says like, "You think the mule's coming?" Like he, yeah. he didn't say it, but he's like, "You think the mule's coming, don't you?" <laughs> it's a second foundationer. They've had just duped all along, like you know. And he tries mm-hmm. and he gives spins this yarn and gets Pritchard like all torqued up in his own head that he's, you know, been manipulated by the second foundation and China's, like, yeah. he just gets, you know, poor guy. Just like a good man. Well, that's the thing, been, right? Like, brainwashed. It, it's like, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, is this, is Pritchard's like, clearly like takes his, whatever the radio, the watch, you know, bandwidth and he's his talking to the mule and like, it's whether he's just like, Toy Story type situation where he's like pretending he's like Buzz Lightyear with all of his like <laughs> yeah. communicating devices and it's like just plastic and wood and like you're like is is Pritchard like off his rocker here or is he like literally and then they egg it up because they say the door opens slowly and then you're like well who's at the door is it the mule because Pritchard's talking sense or is it not the mule because Pritchard's like completely lost his marbles and like you know he's like you know off the deep end but it seems clearly he's not totally off the deep end but, I mean, I guess Chanis might have known that anyway because he's sort of – you know, when you think back to the earlier parts where they're saying, well, well, you need to bring out the mule. And the speakers are kind of going back and forth about engaging him. Yeah, you know, they clearly knew about this all along. All those interludes, you know, lend lend some credence into, you know, how they were trapping him. They clearly knew what they were doing, even if yeah. we did. 
And he's like yeah, questioning his own sanity, right? Like, yeah. But it's okay. He, they just after that, he's like, you know, they're fighting over him in the one and a half second microsecond mind battle that takes ten pages, and then it's like, oh, and you're done. And then Pritchard's out after that. So it wasn't long yeah. before he to put him to put him out of his misery. I'm surprised they didn't just like fry his brain, like you know, like bacon. seems like it. <clears throat> you know. Yeah. Poor What's dude. funny is you look back and it's like after he. After the mule initially took over, and he was like wandering in the woods, and he's working in the clay factory, and you're like, man, it's rough times for Pritchard. He's really having a rough go of it. Like, little do you know, <laughs> like five right. years down the line, he completely gets brain fried. Right, exactly. It's easy for him back then. During he was some just growing a beer. Telekinesis fight. Drinking some beer and making nucleics. It was easy living back then. Yeah. Clean, honest living. Yeah. No. Doing subterfuge yes. for, the, for the Republic. For the he's the mule's man. Now he is, right? Um, well, now he's not, I guess, because they said he's going to be normal when he wakes up. And I guess what that means he's back to, like, old Pritcher. I don't know. I don't know, like, but well, so how – yeah, how are knows? they going to move forward if they've ripped the any inkling of Second Foundation out of the mule's brain? They must have done the same thing to Pritcher because Pritcher was still privy to the whole thing the whole time, right? Um, Maybe Pritchard's think, their new inside man, you know. They're they're gonna like let the mule walk around like, you know, Lottie die. You know, what's what do you mean second foundation? There's only one foundation. And then Pritchard, meanwhile, is like remembers this whole getting, you know, his brain torched by two mind melters and all this other stuff. Like they must have done something to Maybe he's maybe he's heir to the throne, right? Like they they're keeping him around to like condition him to kind of unite the two foundations who knows like or maybe he's just going to fade into the background be like a not a nothing character too soon to tell mm-hmm. i did think and i wanted i brought this up briefly the whole like first speaker thing was like a real gambit because basically their strategy relied on a monologuing of the first speaker like stunning the mule into kind of silence for a moment and then manipulating his brain during that one, that one moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Which just seems extraordinarily risky. Like he's, uh, he's obviously called the first speaker. Well, it, maybe it's not obvious. I'm assuming that he's called the first speaker cause he's the first speaker. Like he's like the most important guy, like the first citizen. Right. Maybe in, yeah, the, shed, in the shadow empire. That is the second foundation. So, like, you send in your top guy to kind of go after middle, you know, middle tier everyday man for the second foundation to try and stop the mule. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense to a certain degree. Like, you send in your big gun for something well, you need absolutely accomplished. The second question is, how? what's the gap between the first speaker and the second speaker in psychological, you know, firepower? I mean, it, what, to a certain degree, it was also vendetta, right? He says so. He's like, this is my opportunity to, like, right a wrong, essentially, because I didn't act fast enough to um, save whatever it's called. So Tanzania. Is he, is he still Tanzania? <laughs> Tanzania. Ten Penny Towers. Oh, no, Wakanda, Peter. Wait, Wakanda? Tanzania. Get the unobtainium out of Wakanda. That's uh, that's off of Pandora, actually. Um, is it on Obtanium in Wakanda as well? No, no, it's not. No, it's called something else. What's it called? Vibranium. That's Captain. Vibranium, right? Right. 
or brand material that's also very lightweight. Yeah. So it's not willful uh, though, so you probably wouldn't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, no, but he says something about like like it was my responsibility at the time when you were when you took over Calgan and I missed it and well, like, is he still the first speaker or was he the first speaker at some time? And now he's just like a member of the council and it's, you know, the, the responsibilities passed to a new primary directive or I don't know, like I, I didn't get a clear view of his role as the true, like kind of top of the pyramid of the second foundation or, um, or had he like lived through that in the past yeah, five years and now he wasn't anymore and maybe sacrificable in that moment to uh, maybe there's another faint lined up behind him just in I case. Mean, it, would, it would be in keeping with like the kind of like the spirit of the organization, right? Is that like we have another layer to this to like of protection. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or maybe it's like a merit badge, right? Like he, he got his first – he got the mule his first merit speaker badge. merit badge after he got his second spirit spirit little, you know, speaker merit badge. A little blue donkey with three stars on it, you know. And then he'll get <laughs> his he'll get his star speaker merit badge. And we haven't speaker we merit haven't, badge. Uh, he's a tenderfoot, this guy. So we haven't all we've heard of them is these two little asides or three little asides. We don't have any insight into anything about them. So you know, no, yeah, we and we have no idea what their their or organization is as a whole. Like, is it oligarchical? Yeah. Is it like a true democracy because everyone has this crazy brain power, these, these mind control powers? I think it's yeah. like, a, like a herd of chimpanzees where there's like an alpha and everybody just kind of like folds into their spot in the group like a tribe. We would call that a dictatorship or a, would it be? an authoritarian government. They do seem to communicate in grunts. So, I mean, it's not yeah. too far-fetched. Well, yeah, like, like we actually get to see two speakers interact with each other, and it's like they're speaking in code, you know. They're speaking in eyebrow twitches and nose wrinkles yeah. and 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 grimace, you know, <laughs> grimace, uh... sultry eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's allowed to wear makeup in the Second Foundation. Right. Yeah. They just they would throw everything off. They don't have any tin on Fazenda anyway, so you're fine. Oh, worthless planet. <laughs> No wonder they allowed it to get nuked into oblivion. You know, Peter, as you know, is like unfaithful to our book group here and he's reading. Yeah, he was like, telling me the degree of his unfaithfulness yeah. and how much reading. I was like, no wonder you don't have time to read our book. Some other books <laughs> so he's reading these great books and we were talking about like how, you know, I, I made the statement that, you know, writing things down, you know, it's good for posterity, but at the same time, like the value of oral, you know, tradition and storytelling really conveys stories in the, you know, in the language of the time. So if you have something written 300 years ago, it's the things that in the time that resonated with people who read it are not going to resonate as much as somebody who reads it today. And I, and I said that there's kind of like a lost, lost meaning that, we would maybe retain if that was a story that had passed through the, you know, oral, uh, oral tradition or something like that. And that comes up actually in this section. I didn't realize it until after I got home and I was reading, you know, catching up on the last two chapters, but 
it comes up like that. a couple, where, where a couple of times. And uh, the first time I noted it, uh, I noticed that they talk about how uh, in section four, you know, they talk about these people on Rossum, right? And as though they debated the information gained, it was difficult to follow these inner discussions of theirs for they lapsed into their own accented version of the universal galactic language that though long through long separation from the currents of living speech had become archaic. So they can't like connect with these people because the verbal language that they use is like some old version of the, the galactic universal galactic language, I guess. Okay. Um, so, so it's, they it's, lost he's basically touch language like kind of early on, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like language drift and an, an evolution of language within the foundation is not, you know, doesn't match the lack of the same type of evolution of the language on Rossum. It just brings up an interesting idea about like the influence of language on the ability to think creatively. There are certain like words that exist in other languages that don't exist in English, like that perfectly surmise something. In German, uh, mainly. It, uh, often in German, right? Like Schadenfreude. So many words in German that like describe phrases and things. It's crazy. Yeah. So uh, there was a Russian word that I got exposed to today that I cannot remember. But the entire word sums up the feeling of the inexplicable feeling of missing something or having lost something without knowing what it is. Right. And it's like, you know exactly what that feeling is. Like you, you're like, you have this desire or this intense longing for something that you cannot remember or that you never knew. And that's something that like speaks to the fundamental human existence that we all share. But the, like the idea that like that kind of language drift would allow for different creative thinking in relation to the stagnant empire that has like absolute dominion over all language. Right. And I'm sure there's like, it's so bureaucratic. It's probably like France where there is like an official uh, branch of the French government that indoctrinates new words to the language to be like issued out to maintain French purity of language. Well, that's a, that's a nation of two languages, written French and spoken French. Those are two different languages. Basically the written French is highly, you know, rigid and, and adheres to the rules of old French. And then the spoken French is like slang, you know, compared to written French, but nobody speaks like written French. They all speak in the colloquial French, which is real French. So that's, a, that's like another good example that like highlights the, the difference between like the oral tradition and the written tradition. And what I was thinking of was really what you'd already mentioned, Peter, um, and probably because it was important and it didn't resonate with me how important it was until I realized that you'd said it. I um, have those effects. <laughs> but they talk about language being the thing that stifles humans' ability to communicate with each other emotionally, right? Right. It stunted the, it stunted the need for it. Right. Like, and, and kind of like, I don't know. I, I forget the exact language. I'll read it to you. I have it here. So actually, humans are capable of much more, but the faculty of direct emotional contact tended to atrophy with the development of speech a million years back. It has been the great advance of our second foundation that this forgotten sense has been restored to at least some of its potentialities. 
And then he points out later that the mule is like uh, even beyond what they have accomplished as far as, you know, restoring the natural ability through practice. But he was born with this ability and just like he's like an Olympic athlete. So, so how traumatic was World War II? that rediscovering emotions was considered revolutionary <laughs> like to a generation the thing that i was trying to bring bring up was the nature of empire and whether or not it's inherently evil right because going back to what we were talking about over the last couple podcasts with the mule taking over is like is empire inherently evil is there such thing as like a good empire it seems like the solution that came in at the end of this this uh, first book of the book, I'm going to keep calling it that, is that you know, the mule still gets to run his empire, but he's going to do so from a place of love and understanding or something like that, right? So he's managed to unite these people in a relatively peaceful way. Uh, I mean, he's ruled with paranoia and fear in his heart, but like how much of that has actually been of consequence to the people of the foundation, That's a legitimate question. Like, do we, do you think those people were suffering under his rule? Go ahead, Dan. I don't know. I mean, the thought was, I thought that it was artificial and that, you know, if the emperor ever wants to get back to where it was, they have to like legitimately go through this process and you can't short circuit it by like emotionally controlling them. <clears throat> it's like, it's almost like the meal was sort of enabling this, this sort of, uh, you know, seductive uh, short-term peace, but never actually getting the progress they need to have a long-standing, successful organization and society. And so while it was very good for them, I'm sure they weren't suffering, there were also, there's some portion of struggle you have to go through in order to actually form the next sort of golden age is what their, Harry Seldon's point was. And so, you know, while it, it, it was, it was artificial. And so they weren't, might not have been suffering, but they weren't actually moving forward. Um, so removing the mule will allow them the necessary changes to happen so that they can get to where they want to get to at the end of the road. But then why would you have a shadow empire of emotional manipulators if that were the case, right? I don't know. We'll find out. Is it just because they're like not <laughs> genuine enough, like in the modern sense of the word? Because being genuine know. is like the new marketable like <laughs> trait. You know. Nobody's genuine anymore because everybody hides behind their iPhone. Yeah, it's just the world of artifice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I you know, I think the uh, this is like something I we talked about at one point. If he emotionally manipulates everybody into submission, then it's a, a it's a charade and what the day he dies and one generation passes you know, the game is up. I don't even know if, if he, uh, if he, um, you know, if he dies, does his emotional will still get exerted or not? I don't know. Um, but in any case, <laughs> in any case, it's like, he can't expect what he's doing in the moment to gain control, to be the way that he maintains control. He's actually got to appeal to the interests of the ruled that want him to lead them if he wants to make something sustainable. And I think that's where it's kind of getting a little bit gummed up right now because 
I think he's struggling with how to do that, you know, without having an heir and without, you know, having a government that can stand on its own two feet without him twisting their emotional loyalties. So I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's what we'll have just have to find out, but it's a good question. Like, I think I, in my mind, I go, always go to like corporate examples. Unfortunately, it's more, I'm more familiar with corporate examples than I'm a, a scholar of history, but I think of GE, right? Edison, like set up the company for like the next hundred years, right? Plus Jack Welsh, like inflated it while he was there and then it collapsed when he left. You know, it's like there's two different ways to lead an organization. And those are like two examples of the extremes. One good, one not so good. I was going to say what the second foundation earned per share last quarter, though. That's really what what's important. Yeah. <laughs> not what's going to be in 10 years. Like, what is it going to be? It's like this idea of the short termism that that uh, drives so much decision making as opposed to like what's sustainable and workable in the long term. It's not really of note in a lot of things. I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like in a lot of ways, the first two books were about the short term solution to becoming the long term solution. Right. It's like, how are we going to get through this crisis? Well, we're going to do some some crafty stuff, pull the out the rug out from the religious machinery that we've been putting in place to, you know, just in case something like this happened. Right. What you're talking about, Jason, is a secession crisis, and basically every empire ever has gone through one of those. Right. Like anytime the emperor dies, right, with without a clear heir, there's some kind of secession crisis. Even like Alexander the Great, who was going to be like the named, um, who was his named successor from Philip, you know, the second of Macedonia. Like there were still people who were trying to put his younger brother on the throne so that they could manipulate, you know, the, the heir apparent and take over, basically seize control, right? It happens all the time. So just because, you know, the mule dies doesn't mean the empire collapses unless he is core to the functioning of the machinery of that government, which it does not seem to be the case. He seems like he's almost barely involved. He just kind of like steers the ship But the day-to-day mundane stuff, like he's not, you know, making people go to work and maintain the nucleic, uh, you know. Or or is he? Cigarette lighter, power plants. Is his mental mental engagement, you know, what makes people actually want to do things? Remember like back in the – when he was doing his conquests – you remember Beta being in the factory, and I was like, "Oh, I'm so depressed. I don't want to work. Nobody's showing up to work." And that's purportedly the mule's doing. Right. Um, you know, is is he doing something the the alternate to make sure that the, you know the clocks are running and the trains are running on time? Um, it's unclear. I, I mean, he might, I, mean I think he, it, he also might I think be. the answer is no, because based off the evidence of this last section of the book, because you know unless he spread so thin that it comes down to a, he can only control the mind of a single man. Cause that's where the whole decision comes down with Chanis the Manus, right? Is that he's like, you can either control Pritcher who's about to shoot you in the face or you can try to like attack me. Um, right. And you know, so then he chooses to like take down yeah. Pritcher. But, yeah. But that wasn't, I felt that wasn't like he was limited. It was like, he, had like a choice of actions and one action would give Chanis an opportunity to react in one way and a different action Chanis would op- 
uh, react in another way. It was more like it was that the two streams kind of like hitting in the sky at that point. But yeah, no, it's like it, these are all like good thoughts. I, I'm kind of interested to see where things go from here um, because now it's clear that like the mule's been you know neutered of his will in addition Aha. to his in addition to his ability to procreate. So he um, he seems like he's kind of now going to be out of the picture, even though he's, yeah, he's been, been like anesthetized like is kind of how I think of him. He's carried right. us from the second book to the third book, but now it's like, okay, it's all about second foundation. We'll find out. I mean, it'd be interesting. I haven't read ahead, but I'd be interesting to see who shows up in the, uh, in the other search for the second. Foundation. And thank you for not reading ahead for once. I appreciate that. <laughs> what do you mean for once? <laughs> so, so I, 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 I had to read behind just because there's so much going on. I got to the end. And I was like, wait a minute. What? I got to go back. What just happened? <laughs> I got to process things. All right. So, well, let's try to move forwards next week. Uh, already new characters. I just opened the first page in a, Encyclopedia. Thanks Galactic for literally book. reading ahead on so the podcast. Reading ahead in you read in, ahead in your face. Yeah, your face in your ear in your ear. Okay. So, um, season three, episode two. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I am I'm Jason and my illustrious co-hosts Peter and Dan. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Talk to you then. Thank you. Bye.